0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I want to start with a question that might make you think I'm kind of out of my mind, but I come to this for a real reason. The question is, are stories bad for us? (laughs) Uh. I ask this not out of nowhere, but I I was turned on to this topic because I recently came across an interview in The Verge with a philosopher who's written a book about how the drive for narrative affects the way we understand the world. And this philosopher who we'll name and and discuss later concludes that on the whole – stories might do more harm than good on planet Earth. And I'm interested in this idea because I so viscerally hate it. (laughs) Like, I'm not sure it's wrong, but in many ways I feel that I sort of like live for stories. And if they are on the whole bad for the world, I almost don't want to know about it. But I guess that's also a sign that we kind of should take a look.
0: Yeah, it's a difficult thing to sort of contemplate because, as we'll discuss, stories – define us in so many ways in so many obvious ways and so many um, uh, ways that are that are a little bit uh, elusive to really you know wrap our, our heads around and they've they've been a part of human culture uh, the, the whole time i mean the the oldest known written stories go back to the 3rd millennium bce and oral storytelling goes even further back than that i mean we've just this is something that that is as old is as old as human culture and the idea that we should flee from that or that, that this is not the the model on which we should be proceeding into the future, uh, it, it forces us to reconsider something very basic about us as a species.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that we might walk away from today's uh, episode concluding is that, OK, maybe – There's no way to get rid of stories, and in fact, we wouldn't even want to, but we should at least be able to appreciate that they can do a lot of harm, Mm -hmm. and so we should know what that kind of harm is and maybe keep an eye out for it. I mean, I might end up kind of lashing out even if you could prove that stories are on the whole bad for the world. It's like I wouldn't want to live without them, and I don't care. I'll keep them even though they hurt.
0: Yeah, and one of the curious things is if we try to imagine a world without stories, uh, we have to imagine a world without stories, that meaning that we have to sort of create a story of an unstoried world, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a bit of conundrum. But certainly you don't have to dig far to begin to sort of see uh, where some of the strife could occur when you start comparing real life to stories. I think one example from uh, the past year or so, uh, that it's going to resonate with a lot of people is when uh, when the, the the Queen movie came out, mm-hmm. Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh yeah, did you see it? I haven't seen it yet. I'm excited to see it because everybody seemed to uh, most people that I talked to seem to love it. Mm-hmm. And we have quite an immortal love for Queen on this show. Oh yeah, I, I love Queen. Uh, but you did see some criticism where people were saying, okay, well you you know you took things out of sequence. You put things. You rearrange things to make a better story. Mm-hmm. And. I do think that you see that with a lot of biopictures because ultimately it's rare for an individual's life to be story-shaped. Um, you know, I often go back to Neil Gaiman's excellent short story collection, Fragile Things, uh, which has some, some wonderful tales in it. But in the introduction, he discusses this, this desire for story-shaped things in our lives, defi- despite the fact that life itself is not story-shaped, yeah. or at least it rarely is. Yeah. Um, and when we turn to myths, comedies, dramas, uh, and, and tragedies, we, we often do so in order to sort of make sense of our life, to, to give sort of a a shape that we can squeeze our life into, uh, even though, uh, again, real life rarely matches the beats and the rhythm of narrative. It reminds me a bit of the, the Chinese notion of... Uh, of a yuan, which is uh, structural completeness, and and generally this is used to, to talk about desired structural completeness in a, in the family, mm-hmm. in the family structure. But I think we can we can also sort of look at narrative structural completeness in life as something that we we find ourselves longing for, maybe not even you know consciously, but subconsciously, and then we rarely find it.
1: Well, yeah, there's a we have a clear, strong desire to impose an aesthetic order on events, which. In many ways, if you just like sample them moment to moment, are quite random mm-hmm. or structured in a way where things do not have emotional drive and significance. I mean, one of the problems is like defining what is a story. I, you know, people might differ on that. But I, I would say it's probably something like it involves characters. So some forms of people, they don't have to be humans, but they've got minds. It's got characters with minds that have desires and goals. And you engage with them emotionally as they struggle to achieve their goals and face obstacles along the way.
0: Right. And uh, depending on what sort of story this is and you know from what tradition it arises that individual May ultimately, uh, you know, rise up from the abyss and uh, and claim their reward, or they fall tragically short of claiming their reward, uh. or they, you know, or they they go mad uh, after seeing an elder god. That sort of thing, right?
1: And whether the structure of your story is comedy or tragedy or eldritch horror, uh, no matter what it is, there is sort of like a, a structural format that we come to expect, and we get pleasure from seeing that format repeated. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to adapt real events into this story shaped whole, you you end up up kind of fudging things a lot right you move mm-hmm. things around in time you leave out a whole lot you just focus on the parts that are important but the funny thing is putting things in a story shaped whole can in fact dictate to us what parts of a sequence of events we think are important when in fact they might not actually be the important parts if we're trying to say uh trying to imagine what actually caused an outcome in a real-world series of events. That might be very different than the things you'd focus on if you're trying to tell an entertaining, emotionally engaging story.
0: Yeah, that's an important thing to keep in mind as we go forward here, because we certainly have the more pure versions of narrative that I imagine most people were thinking of when we first brought this up, Mm -hmm. and that is the novels we read, the myths we tell each other, uh, you know, often out of amusement, but sometimes to see some sort of a, a you know model of life. But then there are the the narratives and the stories that we use to uh, to put a certain uh, shape on the past, to put a certain shape on the present and even on uh, ourselves mm-hmm. uh, that are that can be a little bit more problematic.
1: Yeah, so absolutely, stories can can perhaps distort our uh, appreciation of how and why things really happen. Another reason people might oppose stories or or more literature more broadly, let's say, uh, might be that they just take issue with what effects it seems to have. Uh, like one great example would be Plato. You know, the Greek philosophers they had so many bad takes. You <laughs> know, uh, arguably one of Plato's most unpopular takes is in the Republic when he um he you know he in many ways invades against the power of poetry. Like, Plato thinks poetry should be viewed with extreme suspicion. He's he's not quite sure about poets and their role in the Republic uh, because poetry uses language to encourage antisocial sentiments, and it can't be rationally argued against. It's not rational. It's appealing to you emotionally. And sometimes the appeals it makes, he says, are, are things that are not good for the state. You know, he he wants a state to be a place where everybody acts selflessly and courageously And so he attacks Homer, who tells these stories of characters who fear death and try to avoid being sent to Hades. You know, and Plato thinks, well, this is terrible. These stories just train us to suck at courage (laughs) and have the – you know, they train us not to have the kind of selflessness necessary for a strong state. Now, that's Plato's kind of tyrannical micromanaging idea of how a state should be. But you can see other examples and we do see them all the time with people – Protesting the idea that hey stories are out there showing showing
0: people ways to live that are maybe not good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, at the very basis of this, mentioning the Hades thing, you could you could frame this as like okay, here's a popular story that people are drawn to for a number of reasons. And uh, it's pushing hell theology. It's pushing this idea that the that we, we must act uh, a certain way in this life to avoid something in the next.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the Hades vision being somewhat different yes. there because mm-hmm. that's just where pretty much everybody goes. But I absolutely see what you're saying, uh, saying especially with like ideas of like uh, narratives that reinforce the idea of a punishment in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And this is a big part of another thing narratives do for us is we get to uh, experience vicariousness justice through them. Yeah. You ever notice how people who don't believe in, say, revenge or the death penalty or anything like that in real life, they don't want to see people actually corporally, bodily, violently punished for the things they've done wrong. They still want to see it in narrative. Yeah,
0: you still want to at least see the villain get their comeuppance. Yeah. Um, that still is, is richly satisfying. Um, granted, I think in these cases, you might maybe want a more um, organic comeuppance, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but still, well, like that's the payoff you desire.
1: Well, one of the beauties of uh, fictional narrative is that it can be contrived. So, for example, when the villain does something bad uh, and, and you want to see the villain punished in a story, you, in fact, can contrive it so the hero doesn't have to kill the villain. Maybe the villain, like, uh, does something bad and seals their own fate. They oh. end up falling off a cliff in the last attempt to, you know, stab the hero in the back or something like that.
0: This this is one of my favorite yeah one of my favorite tropes that you see in uh, p- particularly it's been used in one Pixar film of note I'm not going to mention it just in case uh, someone hasn't seen it but they they have to pull off this exact same thing the villain is spared but no the villain Really wants to do something awful, and then they they act, and then they die it, for their uh, efforts.
1: Yeah, Disney type films do this all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's a great way to have it have your cake and eat it too. Right. You get to watch the villain get punished and die, but the hero doesn't have to
0: do something vengeful and violent. Or yeah, or the hero gives them their second chance. Yeah, um, I, I should also point out if 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 you're in into this uh, discussion. Uh, definitely check out our episode on masked uh, killers in horror movies from oh, yeah. October, because we spent a lot of time talking about this uh, at this sort of thing as it concerns Jason Voorhees. Right.
1: Though I think in that context, in a much uh, seedier type of uh, yeah. desire to see punishment of others, maybe less having to do with them actually committing crimes.
0: Right. But I mean, the Jason Voorhees story is is a reminder that it's like when we're talking about Stories that resonate—they're not all uh, the Iliad, yeah. You know, <laughs> Now granted, there's a lot of bloody stuff that goes on. They're the not Iliad. all
1: Pixar either. Yeah, they're not all
0: Pixar. They're not all uh, f- refined works. Uh, they don't have to be. They can to, to resonate with a culture.
1: Well, let's get back to what these experts uh, we're going to be talking about today have actually said about the power of stories. I guess for good and for ill, but specifically, we all know the goodness about stories. I mean, we hear about that all the time. We mm-hmm. think about it all the time. What's really novel is to think that there could be some way that stories are really messing us up.
0: Cool. Yeah, well, let's uh, yeah, let's get into it here. Um uh, first I want to mention uh, a, a professor of anthropology, history, and Tibetan studies at the University of Colorado, Carol McGranahan. She was uh, one of uh, several different individuals that uh, appeared on uh, an episode of uh, Ideas with Paul Kennedy, a CBC radio show. Oh, that's and, one of your favorites. Yeah, yeah. Th- this episode aired several months back. You should be able to find it on their website re- relatively easily. It's uh, titled, Have I Got a Story for You? And in that, she, she discusses the power of certainly having a story. Uh, but also the detriment of being denied your story, uh, the empowerment of finally having a story to tell or more telling you know, for your story to suddenly have value in society to be permitted at all. And uh, one of the examples, uh, you know, the, the, there are various examples you can turn to th- with, as various groups, demographics, whole genders have been uh, denied their story uh, over the course of history. Uh, but she also points out the Me Too movement as a, as a contemporary example of this. Of uh, example where people felt, uh, you know, were finally emboldened to share these stories that were not permitted to be to be to be shared previously, mm-hmm. be it an overt you can't talk about that, or just kind of a the societal uh, cultural pressure of this story is not appropriate or not valued. Uh, so I think in this th- we we definitely see an example of sort of the, the pros and cons of stories. Yes, it can be. It can be empowering to tell your story or to, and certainly to be able to turn to stories and culture that match your own and give you, you know, strength. But then also we can see the, 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 the negative of that. If, if you are not allowed to tell your story or you don't see your story reflected in, say, the popular storytelling uh, in your culture, then, uh, then, yeah, that can have a detrimental effect.
1: You know, it's interesting in this kind of context, all the different things that the idea of a story or a narrative comes to mean, I mean, like in some cases, it means literally like a, a chronology of events with main characters that mm-hmm. face frustrations. And this could, I mean, in the case we're talking about here, these are true stories. Um, so like telling the story of your life, you're singling out the things that you think were significant, talking about the struggles you faced and all that. But we also, in, in a public context, we use words like narrative and stories to mean all all kinds of things. You know, we use it to mean sometimes just like um, uh, your narrative might mean like the things you believe, right. or it might just mean like a set of facts that you have in hand. Or sometimes narrative comes to mean uh, like, like a worldview. It's like, you know, it's like your set of starting assumptions.
0: Yeah, and I think this is all valid. On the other hand, I do agree with some of the sentiments we're going to explore later that the narrative is – the word narrative, the classification of narrative is probably a bit overused currently. Yeah, um, It's uh, – I saw it – today looking unfortunately at twitter comments on uh, somebody else's post oh yeah immediately the criticism was oh you're pushing this narrative this is your narrative Mm. um and of course the the implication in that is always that i am dealing with objective truth. Right. I've you, got facts. You've I have got facts. a story. You have story. Yeah, you have a narrative. You're the one pushing a narrative. When in rea- I, I, reality, I mean, we're all playing with narratives.
1: Well, but the funny thing about even that usage, I mean, whether or not it's legitimate, I think that is probably often lobbed unfairly. But- even if, whether you're right or wrong, it suggests that we intuitively sense that maybe there's something that's not always quite right about using Mm. a story to view the world through, right? You know, that we're we're sensing intuitively that maybe sometimes people use stories to get a skewed view of reality.
0: It makes me think back to, did you ever watch Jim Henson's The Storyteller uh, with uh, John Hurt? I actually have not. Oh, it was a tremendous series. And, there is a sense in that show, especially in one episode, that the the storyteller is, a, you know, a character to be distrusted by the the powers that be mm-hmm. because he is traveling around amongst the people and, uh, and and telling these tales. Oh, well, as we'll go on to explore, I mean, narrative is
1: quite powerful and it can motivate action.
0: I do want to throw in one more uh, bit from uh, McGranahan here. And that is that, that she drives home that stories and even memories – Uh, by necessity, exist within a social context. So I think that's key to keep in mind here, you know, that uh, that connection is always going to be in place.
1: Oh, of course. I mean, one clear example of this is you ever notice how some stories really transcend cultures and others Mm -hmm. really don't. Yeah. You know, some really don't. You just you feel like I'm not part of the culture that produced this or the time that produced this and thus I don't get it. Sometimes you look at some works of ancient literature and they don't feel like a story to you.
0: Right. Yeah, or even uh, if it's um, some sort of international cinema mm-hmm. or there are also I think there are those cases where we only get you only get half of it. There's so much that's of course either obviously lost to translation itself mm-hmm. or we're just not, you know, we're just not getting the nuance of, of what it should mean culturally. Uh, I, I've mentioned this before regarding uh, various Chinese ghost stories uh, where, it, yeah, you, 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 you lose something when you lose the language. You lose something when you lose uh, certainly like the literary references. You're still left with, a, in many cases, a really cool ghost story, a really cool monster encounter, uh, but, but you're missing all the other things as well and uh, And I think that's going to happen, or right? there's a there's a potential f- for that to happen anytime you take a story out of one culture and place it into another.
1: All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss more about stories All right, we're back. So as I mentioned at the top, I was inspired to talk about this today when I saw an interview published at The Verge with a Duke University professor and philosopher of science who's written a book about the use of narratives in understanding history. And this philosopher is named Alex Rosenberg. Uh, I wasn't familiar with him otherwise. And this book is called How History Gets Things Wrong, The Neuroscience of Our Addiction to Stories. Now, um, I'm to understand, I wasn't actually able to listen to that uh, Ideas episode, but Rosenberg's on that episode, right? Oh,
0: yes. Yeah, he's one of three individuals uh, that, that they chat with, and, uh. and he's extremely well-spoken on all of this, uh, and, and very uh, and humorous, too. Yeah. Um, Because one of the things – like we we don't want to make it sound as if he is like railing against narrative. Uh, Like he himself is a novelist as well. Oh,
1: yeah. He's written multiple historical novels and he makes the point that – you know, he thinks stories are wonderful. Like Mm. there's no denying that they bring us joy. They enrich our lives. And there's also little doubt that they're one of the most – if not the single most powerful ways of changing people's minds about things and motivating action – uh, though of course, maybe this isn't always for good,
0: right? And uh, one of the things that he talks about uh, at length, especially on the the ideas episode, is is the idea of self narrative, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of, of viewing our life as a story and ourself as a character in that story, and indeed turning to uh, exterior narr- narratives, be it a you know novel, a movie, a myth, and then using that as sort of a a a guide by which we might interpret our own life and our own identity, but before we get get to get to that really like th- there's like the idea of where narrative comes from yeah and and Rosenberg says that he sees self narrative as one of the oldest among uh, Uh, various human adaptations that enabled us to survive the prehistoric world, to deal with predatory threats and then work our way up the food chain.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you can clearly see self-narrative as some variation on the same kind of adaptive value as imagination. Yeah. What is imagination good for? You can, like, simulate something that might be dangerous before you actually try it. And turn it over in your brain and see if you can sort of practice without actually putting yourself at risk. And this is a lot of what narrative is too. You know, you're imagining ways, stories in which characters face obstacles, maybe like obstacles you might face. Mm -hmm. uh, But you don't have to actually face them yet. It's sort of mental practice runs. But then when you apply that to yourself, it has all these other interesting properties and
0: valences. You can go – you can mess around with time in your life. Exactly. And yeah, time I think is one of the the key ones, uh, mental time travel or chronesthesia. The ability to think. All right, what what will happen if this occurs? Mm. And of course, that's more overtly uh, visible in things like science fiction. What will the future be like? Well, here's one version. It'll be Blade Runner, right. you know, that sort of thing. But but also we we see that in like if you see a movie about uh, individuals dealing with say um, oh I, I don't know a tornado. You watch Twister. Yeah, Twister is on some level a, a chronesthetic. Um, exercise in uh, in storm preparation.
1: Like you're thinking, what might actually happen to you next year
0: when the big when the big twister comes down the down the field? Yeah, yeah, sorta. Of. Uh, but but then again, more to Rosenberg's point here, a lot of this comes back to theory of mind. Yes. That ability we have to create a rough simulation of another individual's mind state, their history, their goals, their ideas, etc. All those things that. You know, if you've ever taken a writing course, a creative writing course, where someone says, all right, here's a list of questions about your protagonist. Answer them mm-hmm. so that you can, you know, ground yourself in who they are. Uh-huh. I mean, that can be
1: kind of rote, but it's also like – that's not a bad exercise. Yeah. I mean, it forces you to think. And also, it's something that you – ultimately want your audience to do if you're trying to write good characters. I mean, yeah, yeah if, you, if you talk to like neurotologists, what happens when we get involved in a good story? You get transported into it. You become part of the story. You empathize with the characters and you try to share their mind. It's like you create a, you know, a brain to brain link with that fictional character.
0: Yeah. And if you find something there, some form in their mind that you have already or mm-hmm. that you would like to have, then then you have that connection. So, uh, yeah, theory of mind. It was, uh, it was essential, he argues, uh, for our cooperation as a species, for us to uh, able to engage in this sort of uh, thinking and ultimately create self-narratives that would guide our understanding. Mm-hmm. However, despite its usefulness in our survival and the importance of narrative in our lives today, he criticizes its destructive uses in our understanding of other cultures, histories, religions, etc., now he does not mean historical scholarship here like pure historical scholarship but rather the looser narratives that push cer- push certain destructive uh, understandings of history peoples and places
1: so he's saying not so much that when history gets things wrong he's not so much talking about historians right uh, but the ways we make history into a story
0: right like on some level to understand history we have to create narr- we have to create narratives we have to at least create a sequential understanding, you know, because ultimately we're trying to say, well, what caused this? What caused that? But then again, and we've discussed this on the show before, like there's a trap in thinking that you're going to create a story-shaped sequence of events
1: well, I think the crucial thing would be coming back to what we were just talking about, which is theory of mind, mm-hmm. right? When you try to imagine that things in history happened because you identify with a character in history mm-hmm. and you can simulate what they were thinking and what they wanted and why they did what they did. We did this all the time in history. We even simulate the minds of masses of people, not like individuals. Mm-hmm. We, we like make a – what did the workers in St. Petersburg want – during the October Revolution, and it's mm-hmm. like it's like you make them into a single person whose mind you simulate, and you think maybe you understand them like
0: they're the main character in a story. Yeah, and you can see where like the basic argument here is this might be a very useful shortcut uh, in a in in a, in a previous age. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're just dealing with the the basic survival of uh, of uh, prehistoric humans, you know, try, again, trying to survive predation. Uh, and, and the challenges of the natural world and work their way up the food chain, but you get into our more you know, modern um, uh, challenges, and this doesn't hold up. Uh, for instance, he he talks about the the situation of of looking at uh, at science and story. Mm-hmm. So w- we engage in a certain amount of storytelling on this show when we talk about science. Yeah, and uh, and it's you see this echoed time and time again in science uh, communication. Tell a story. Tell a story. Um, I think Robert Krolich, uh gave a talk about this uh, years mm-hmm. ago, saying like he uh, you know about how scientists need to be able to tell a story to relate what they're doing to everyday people. yeah and and there's there's certainly a value in that the, the that's the that's the pro. but then the the uh, the con the the opposite side of the coin here is uh, as as Rosenberg points out, you know when it comes to science, we prefer the narrative. Uh, to the the raw scientific data, mm-hmm. you know, and and this can this can be fine if you have a narrative that's there to support scientific consensus. Uh, or to or to help explain what the science actually says. But then when you have a narrative that is working counter to scientific consensus, mm-hmm. then you start getting into problems.
1: Well, unfortunately, the fact is that just reality tends to favor people who will cheat. Yeah. So, like, if you are not constrained by facts mm-hmm. and by nuance and by trying to be really honestly and, you know, trying really hard to understand what the science says, uh, communicate it accurately, if you don't have those limitations – then you've got all kinds of room to tell the best kind of story you want. You know, you can can make really compelling characters. You can say exactly why things happen that give great twists and turns and drama. It's a lot harder to shape a compelling narrative if you're constantly bound by realities that you cannot ignore and must be truthful about.
0: Right. I mean, you look at examples such as, say, Alex Jones, right? Where Alex Jones is not going to say, all right, well, this particular problem that I'm talking about today, uh, you know, it has a number of complex uh, uh, causes. It's difficult to 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 nail down exactly how it came to be. No, he's going to say it's this and they are literal demons. Yeah. You know, and, and that makes for a better story. It does. I'm
1: often self-conscious uh, on this very show, especially like, I mean, there are lots of cases where this comes up. But I would say a common one would be like anytime we talk about neuroscience mm-hmm. – uh, almost always there are there are simple not very accurate stories you can use to talk about uh about things in neuroscience like what a brain region does this is the fear center of the brain mm-hmm. you know or what a neurochemical does oxytocin is the love hormone right when in reality what I feel like I always have to keep saying over and over again is like well it you know this Brain region or subsystem, or this neurotransmitter—it's—it uh, seems to be involved in a lot of different things. It's complex. We don't fully understand its role yet. It's correlated with all these weird, diverse things. And I feel like I have to say that in order to be honest about what seems to be the case as far as we know right now. But it's—it's it's hard to tell a really like you know gut-wrenching story that way and keep people on the hook. I feel like we have to do it to be honest. But, you know, there are all kinds of unscrupulous people out there who are going to just be fine telling you a really simple pat story about oxytocin is the love hormone. And all it – what it does is it makes you moral and makes you love – loving and compassionate.
0: Yeah. And maybe they're – you know, maybe they're just trying to make you feel better. Maybe they're trying to sell you a supplement. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the 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 actual motivation could be any number of things. Uh, so you know, one of Rosenberg's key points here, I think, is that, you know, ultimately it's it's an example of the needs of modern humanist civilization outstripping the limitations of what our minds evolved to do. Mm. Uh, and he ultimately is arguing that, you know, it's not that we need to get rid of narrative. Uh, you know, I don't. Uh, I for one, I I don't think it's even possible. No, of course not. But it's ridiculous. Yeah, but I. But to whatever extent we could increase awareness of narrative and what narrative does, yes, and then lean more towards what science does mm-hmm. in those cases where it's applicable. Well, and I think another thing would be. You can't
1: beat it. I, I think it's just impossible to get over the compelling power of storytelling uh, in, in driving people's behavior and shaping their attitudes. So what has to be true is that people who want to spread the truth rather than lies – have to work really hard and spend a lot of resources honing their ability to tell engrossing, compelling, emotionally engaging personal stories that still nevertheless communicate what we know to be true right. instead of the lies that people are trying to sell with other stories out there. Now, uh, back to that uh, interview on The Verge that that uh, was with Rosenberg, you know, he said one thing that I thought was interesting here. So he he's talking about the use of narratives in understanding history – um, and he says quote the problem is these historical narratives seduce you into thinking you really understand what's going on and why things happen but most of it is guessing people's motives and their inner thoughts it allays your curiosity and you're satisfied psychologically by the narrative and it connects the dots so you feel you're in the shoes of the person whose narrative is being recorded it seduced you into a false account and now you think you understand the second part is that it affects effectively prevents you from going on to try to find the right theory and correct account of events. The third problem, which is the gravest, is that people use narratives because of their tremendous emotional impact to drive human actions, movements, political parties, religions, and ideologies. And many movements like nationalism and intolerant religions are driven by narrative and are harmful and dangerous for humanity. Uh, And I – I think that's quite true. I you know, I love storytelling and I and I encourage people who want to spread truth and goodness around the world to use stories to do it. But we have to notice that, like, fascism is highly based on storytelling. Mm-hmm. It tells a story about a plot. You know, there are villains to it. Uh, usually it alleges all these conspiracies and, and you know, and there's a hero that's the leader, you know, who's yeah. going to be the only one to protect you and make everything great. Uh, I mean, most of, the, most of the bad, the worst religious movements in the world have a similar kind of, like, uh, storytelling thrust. They've got a, a plot with villains that must be faced off. In an ultimate battle, it's not hard to see why these ideologies are, are very attractive to people. I mean, they're they're like the movies we love the most.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and uh, we're going to come back to this I- I- idea as well because it, this gets, I think, into the the concept of the terror of history.
1: All right, let's take one more break, and then when we come back. We'll discuss more about the idea of the narrative of self. <laughs>
0: All right, we're back. Uh, so another individual that uh, popped up on that ideas episode and uh, and who also wrote an excellent piece for uh, Ian magazine titled uh, Let's Ditch the Dangerous Idea that Life is a Story uh, is a professor of philosophy, um, University of, of Texas at Austin, Galen Strawson. And he takes issue with the notion that a self-narrative is universal or even important. Hmm. He thinks that it varies greatly from person to person. Uh, how much stock they put in the idea of a personal narrative, and that even those of us who think we put stock in a personal narrative, it might not really hold up to a lot of close analysis. And by you know, this is the basic idea that like I am a character in a story, my life is a story, and thinking of your life as such. Mm. And and so I I do think there are probably some people who who almost you know very literally think that. I for myself like this made I I did a lot of self reflection after uh, listening to him and, and reading uh, his words on this, and I do feel like I tend to sort of casually think of myself as an as a character in a story, but then when I stop to really think about it, I don't I don't think I actually do it all that much. I
1: I think I consciously sometimes try not to. Yeah. Um. Th- this is something I I might even I don't know when this essay was published in the Eon, but uh. I might have read it when it came out. In any case, uh, whether or not I have – I mean I've encountered ideas before about the pitfalls of telling this, this story about yourself, that's mm-hmm. the narrative of your life and you are the main character in it. I think that can lead to a lot of self-aggrandizing or self-pitying, myopic thinking. Yeah, because you
0: might be telling a great story about yourself yeah. and that can be – at the appropriate level, that can – be very encouraging, give you motivation. Mm-hmm. But if it's too great a story, well, then you're getting into areas of overconfidence or even delusion. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if you're telling too sad of a story, you know, uh, a story that's too concerned with, with, with you know, with, with misery, with, uh, you know, defining yourself by something that happened to you or, or something that you did, then uh, then th- that's not a, a healthy exercise either. It's, um, yeah, it, there's so much room for error in this.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, I I tried it. (laughs) It's not like I succeed at this most of the time. But I think it's an ongoing project of mine at least – to try to uh, really believe the fact that I, as a self, do not exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, my body exists and my brain exists, and I continue doing things. But the me, the version of me that I picture when I start getting into story mode, does not exist and is not real. Uh, the the self is in many ways an illusion. You are instead, you know, you're a body doing things moment from a moment and you have this conscious appreciation of it and you can tell whatever kind of story about that you want but that doesn't mean it's true
0: yeah uh i will say that one thing that i do find myself doing a lot is taking another person's sort of another person's life uh and the sort of the story version of it holding it up and then comparing it to my life Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of times it is going to be with people that we consider heroes of some in some form or another right or
1: whatever oh, the, oh, no, do you do the like, who, who, what did this person publish by my age? Yeah,
0: that sort of thing. Or yeah, uh, yeah what did they accomplish by the time I uh, they were my age? Were they dead by the time they were uh-huh. my age? That sort of thing. Well, I've fallen into this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying that I do find myself doing it. And it's, it's ultimately kind of a, a dumb exercise because yeah. you're, you're either, or at least when I do it, I end up either using it as a way to beat myself up or to pat myself on the back and it's like, oh, don't worry, this, this person didn't get anything done in their life till they were 60. A lot of times, too, we're, we're comparing our lives to these just outright fictional narratives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how healthy is that if you're, like you, you're comparing yourself to a character in a tragedy or, or even a character in a, you know, some sort of a, an, an adventure story that, again, is not going to really match up to, uh, to actual life. So, Strassen points out that that self-analysis is important, and we see variations of the "know thyself" mantra dating back to like ancient egypt but but there's ultimately a broad spectrum here. You know, we all tend to recognize the value of living in the moment rather than focusing on self or and narrative. Uh, but of course, that doesn't mean we do it. And there's only so much of we of it we can do in our modern lives. like you, mm-hmm. You can't really just live in the moment all the time. We have to engage in a certain amount of mental time travel. We have to we have to reflect. We have to look back on the past and and uh, and and at least consider our mistakes and our traumas in order to move forward. But, uh, you know, but he does stress the self aspect in all of this. A self-narrative is, uh, in many ways, inherently self-interested and Mm self-focused. And there's, there's, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of room for personal growth there, but there's also a great deal of room for Again, just egotistical self-obsession and pride and just going me, me, me as you as you envision this story. Well, also I think whenever you imagine yourself as the main
1: character of a narrative, you run the risk of thinking of other people in the world as side characters. Yeah, supporting which,
0: characters. Yeah, yeah,
1: in a story, there are supporting characters. But in reality, nobody's – I mean everybody's the main character of their own life, I guess. Um, so – or
0: and then also villains, yeah. you know? like Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, granted, some of us are unfortunate enough to have encountered individuals that more directly fall into the villain um, archetype, someone who is a direct, uh, uh, sometimes even physical danger to ourselves that has to be dealt with or avoided, et cetera. But for many of us, we, I think we do have a tendency to sort of manufacture villains. Absolutely,
1: I, you know, you see people do this. They they've picked somebody who has become the villain of their life at this time. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody has a bad boss or something, and then yeah. they get into the mode of where they just see more and more evidence all the time of how awful this person is, and they're like just building the case that yes, this is the villain.
0: Yeah, and this kind of thinking is the kind of, it can lead to things like. Viewing members of other, say, socioeconomic uh, classes as being just default villains mm-hmm. or, or other races as being villainous, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes even in just kind of, a, a, you know, a, a more of a subconscious way as opposed to an, an overt way. But um, anyway, uh, Strausson though, he ultimately argues that, you know, there are many ways of living an examined life because that's what uh, Socrates uh, called for. He said an, ex- an unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, But he says, you know, we don't have to depend on a a bunch of, quote, self-directed poking around. (laughs) Uh, He says we can instead read good novels and focus on other people. And he argues that being an ethical person is better executed not in focusing on your story, sort of the overarching shape of your life uh, that you're sort of hallucinating, but rather in focusing, focusing on immediate opportunities for positive action.
1: Yeah. And again, by focusing on the overall shape of your life as a story, you're inevitably not really going to be thinking about it in a very clear way. you're You're automatically biasing your thinking about yourself by doing that.
0: I do think it's interesting. if you, yeah, if you think of life as a story, there's plenty of room for for awful actions so long as there's a you know a redemptive um, uh, you know story arc involved, right? Uh-huh. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, for instance, is an awful person for the vast majority of his life. But then he turns it around at the very end, and, and of course, of course, we see this in so many redemption stories. People who even today work a, a book deal or even a, a kind of career out of having the right out of darkness story of, oh, right, of making yeah. a correction in their life. And I mean, it's weird to sort of to judge that because on one hand, like that is inspiring. Like we should have inspiring stories of people being able to turn their life around and make changes. Like Ebenezer Scrooge is ultimately a positive figure because he does turn it around at the end, right? But uh, but then it also like discounts a lot of awful stuff early on.
1: Well, you know, I feel like the redemption story is something that is is fine when it's backward-looking, but not when it's forward-looking. Oh, yeah. You know, like when somebody, when somebody turns their life around, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks it's good to like continually say, no, 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 there can be no redemption for you. We must harp on all the bad things you mm-hmm. did in the past. But if somebody is currently doing bad things and planning to continue doing bad <laughs> things, but thinking – Sometime in the future, I could be better. Obviously, that's a, that is a moral failure and that, that's not commendable.
0: Well, and I think this is where we can look to the idea that narratives in some cases can maybe have a negative effect on our lives where we're thinking, my, OK, my life is currently falling into the shape of this redemption story. Uh-huh. I'm entering the abyss. Right. But that's OK because it's necessary. Like out of the abyss comes a, you know, a, a reformed character. Um, The turning point is always now. If you see the turning point, you should be turning. Absolutely. Now, uh, another interesting point of Strawson's is that he thinks we can really blame a lot of our modern emphasis on narrative on some key big names in philosophy. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, he points out Scottish philosopher uh, Alistair MacIntyre, who, uh, born in 1929, still alive as of this recording, wrote After Virtue. Hmm. Uh, Charles Taylor, 1931, still alive, still alive. Uh, as of this recording, wrote uh, Sources of the Self and argued for the ethical necessity of thinking of yourself in a narrative way. And then French philosopher Paul Ricoeur, 1913 through 2005, who wrote Time and Narrative. But it's still something that is, continues on uh, to, to this day. Um, Strawson points to uh, Dan P. McAdams, a leading narrativist among social psychologists, And writing in The Redemptive Self Stories uh, Americans Live By, 2006, um, uh, they write the following, quote, Beginning in late adolescence and young adulthood, we construct integrative narratives of the self that selectively recall the past and wishfully anticipate the future to provide our lives with some semblance of unity, purpose, and identity. Personal identity is the internalized and evolving life story that each of us is working on as we move through our adult lives. I do not know who I really am until I have a good understanding of my narrative identity.
1: Well, it's possible that's true. I mean, I I don't know. Uh, so Strawson's arguing it's not actually necessary to think of your life as a story and right. that you you can in some way avoid doing it.
0: Right. And that many of us don't do it. That yeah. Like it's not a universal thing, that there's a broad spectrum of right. how we deal with it. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I don't know if he's right or I don't know if it's right that you have to in some way think of your life as a story. I mean, either way, I think it should help to recognize the the negative capacity we have uh, to, to distort reality and excuse our own bad behavior and encourage uh, encourage negative patterns of thought that are unproductive by thinking of our lives as a certain kind of story mm-hmm. and by thinking of other people as characters in our story that way. So that at least I think should we should think about and should give us pause.
0: And a lot of this comes back too, to just the particularly flawed uh, idea of self. Uh, that's one thing that Strassen points uh, out in that uh, Ian magazine piece uh, that I mentioned earlier. He invokes the work of developmental psychologist Eric Erickson and English moral philosopher Mary Midgley to make a, a case that there is no self, but that we are, in the words of painter Paul Klee, quote, a dramatic ensemble. Well, I like that. Yeah, yeah. I
1: think that there's, there's uh, quite a few actors inside all of us.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not just Jekyll and Hyde. It's – it's it's uh, you know, there's a there's a whole – there's a whole array of people, you know? <laughs> Jekyll
1: and Hyde and the butler and the police inspector and... <laughs> Colonel Mustard. Yeah, no, right. the whole crew. Who's that guy Hyde stomped on a bunch, beat with a cane?
0: Oh, I, I, I don't remember the specific... It's been so long since I, I read that or watched an adaptation. Well, he's in there too. Okay. Old Stompy. All
1: right, well, I think maybe we should call the first episode there, but we will be back in another episode where we explore the psychology and
0: neuroscience of stories. That's right. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind... Just go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes, links out to various social media accounts, a little tab for a store there, pick up a little merchandise. Uh, but the best way to support our show, uh, if you want to help us keep this thing running, is to uh, subscribe to us wherever you have the power to subscribe to us, and then rate and review us wherever that is. Wherever you get this podcast, give us a strong rating uh, and a nice review because it really helps us out in the long run.
1: Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's a new email address, folks. Don't, don't mistake it for the old one. Contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.